Welcome to the CEC report for the 24th of August 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, Bankers Party implodes while driving Australia into a financial crash and austerity doesn't work, it kills. So firstly, Bankers Party implodes while driving Australia into a financial crash. So I think it's fair to say that by the time you watch this video, we will have a new Prime Minister. Who that might be, I can't help you with. Julie Bishop, ScoMo, or... Peter Dutton. Peter Dutton. Not any of them are very good choices, I must no. say. Um, but of course, you know, we'll be at a new election soon, perhaps sooner rather than later, given the way this process could play out. So there's probably not a lot of point speculating beyond saying that, look, you know, this has happened, um, this is our sixth, uh, or if we get a new one, this will be a sixth Prime Minister in 11 years. And look, these guys are in complete and outright denial. If they think it's a personality issue, they are nuts. I mean, they get elected and immediately, within weeks, they're on the nose. It's not because of the personality. It's because of their policies. The people are hurting, whether it's the mortgage they can't pay, the electricity bill they can't pay, getting screwed by the banks. I mean, we can, the list goes on. Yep. These parties need to change policy, and we've shown them exactly what to do. Lisa, look, as we said on this show, our country is being governed by a policy of economic rationalism, privatisation. All the policies of, of an organisation called or call the Mott Pelerin Society, which is a radical right-wing uh, uh, think tank operating group that came into Australia in the 1970s. Now, what we're seeing is the end phase of a policy that doesn't work. Mm. And they write the policies for both major parties, so and that's, that's the why point, it's the same. Is that after 40 years, we're seeing the, the disintegration of our economy, the productive side of our economy. We've lost our manufacturing, right? We're losing farmers. We don't produce anything like we used to, and said we've moved to a services, a financial services-based economy, or lack thereof, mm. which has been shown to be riddled with corruption, as from what the Royal Commission is uncovering, and therefore that rot, that cancer is now spread into the political system. So it's not possible to have a stable political system under these sorts of policies. Mm. So it doesn't matter about the policies, over the personalities. Forget about that. I mean. Yeah. For those who've got personalities, uh, don't worry about that. The, the point is that the underlying issue is that this, this policy direction the last 40 years mm. is bringing the system down. And what we're seeing with the Royal Commission is indicative of that because the outrage from the community is finally beginning to be put on display, at least the tip of the iceberg of it. And that is what is really putting heat on all parties in the Parliament, as we find when we go to Canberra, to listen to the policy changes we're suggesting, such as Glass-Steagall, to rein in the banks, stop them gambling, stop them prostituting the Australian economy for the sake of a few dollars, which ain't even working. Well, that's right. And I think more and more people are standing, starting to see that this system is in its end phase. It can't continue. The, mm. the housing bubble's not going to continue. Yeah. And another example of the people recognising that is John Dalson, which we wanted to talk about, uh, the former director of ANZ Bank and chairman of Woolworths. John Dalson has just called for structural separation of banks, quote, following the principle of the US Glass-Steagall Act, unquote. So this is a senior figure, leading former banker, 
He wrote this in an article uh, which was originally written for the IPA Review, the Institute of Public Affairs Review, which is one of those Montpelerin think tanks that you mentioned, Craig. So it's very, very interesting that here is a former IPA board member, I think he was, who's now come out and he's written this article. It was headlined, it was published, um, well, edited version was published on the 1st August in the Australian Financial Review, headline, APRA's incestuous rule comes at too high a price. And I'll just tell you what he said. Uh, he said, there is an incestuous relationship between APRA and the banks. There is no separation of influence and nearly all senior staff are ex-bankers. So you are unlikely to get any independent and innovative thought. Then he blasted APRA's use of secrecy provisions in order for them to hide the fact that they don't, and in fact they cannot, review the immense amount of data that the banks provide to them um, so APRA's meant to assess their, the risk of the banks based on that data, um, but of course they really don't. And as John said, the risk-based models used by banks and regulators must be externally reviewed as a matter of urgency because obviously there are huge risks that we're not addressing in the banking system. He said problems in banking will not be solved until the structure is changed which means more than merely reshuffling responsibilities around the existing club of regulatory institutions. This, he said, should be accomplished following the principle of the US Glass-Steagall Act. And he also goes on um, to talk about the fact that you need simple regulations because otherwise if you have something that's very, um, uh, you know, detailed and complex, the banks are going to find ways around it. And he, would, he actually hopes that banks would do this voluntarily because he sees in the current environment with a financial crash bearing down, as the banks saw when Roosevelt first implemented this policy, that it's actually to their advantage. But nonetheless, he said, enforced separation in Australia seems inevitable and the mere threat of it could prompt demergers. But of course, Craig, we've got legislation in the Parliament tabled in the House of Representatives to do just this. That's right, Lisa. Uh, Bob Catter has introduced a bill with An Andrew Wilkie to uh, separate the banks. It's called the Bank Re Separation Reform Bill. And the point is it, it does, it breaks apart the existing banking structures that we have now. It separates out the necessary commercial banking system that we need for commerce and it breaks off all the merchant banking uh, investment banking, stockbroking houses, insurance companies and everything else which is involved in the so-called vertical integration that's happened at the banks over the last decades and separates that out. What's interesting about this legislation is it's quite simple. Mm. It says the banks cannot do this. Whereas if you look at the Dodd-Frank bill that Obama introduced into the US, which was 848 pages, mm. the problem is that that was trying to specify what the banks could do as opposed to what they can't, whereas the Glass-Steagall says, you know, you can't have commercial banks operating with investment and merchant banks. The Dodd-Frank bill tried to elaborate the powers the banks could have. And one very famous uh, uh, person in the United, United Kingdom said, given the bankers a chance, they'll get between the wallpaper and the wall yeah, in terms of regulations. And they do. They'll just use their power, they use their money to, to get past. So you've got to make it very cut and dried, very black and white, and that's what our bill does. Yep. Now, it's sitting in the parliament right now. Uh, that's if we have a parliament next <laughs> week. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Mm. But the point is that this bill has been brought to the, uh, to the parliament, it's been placed in the, the floor of the parliament by public pressure. Yep. At least we've had thousands and thousands of people uh, supporting this 
this bill and they've, they've now got it into the parliament and people watching this program need to call in mm -hmm. uh, to our 1800 number and get more information on this or go to our website or get copies of our Australian Alert Service to follow this particular mm. campaign of Glass-Steagall. But look, the issue, the issue is that Glass-Steagall is just the first plank, the first step. We also have to move to what's called national banking, which is the creation of a national bank which would absorb APRA. We, we don't want APRA, we don't need a reserve bank, mm. right? Those structures are brought in to destroy the sovereignty of our country back in the late 50s in the case of the Reserve Bank and then the 90s in the case of APRA, destroy the capability of a government-run credit mm. system in this country. Because they were subservient to international financial institutions. Yeah, so the, you've got APRA formed, you've got ASIC formed, you had these regulatory bodies that John Dalson's gone for formed, gone after and you know, they were formed, but you also have the Reserve Bank. The central bank model was used instead of a national, what we call a national bank model. Mm. And look, that means then you have a mechanism. A national bank can create the credit necessary to fund large-scale infrastructure development projects for our country. And we desperately need that. We need to put people back into productive jobs, not just rely on digging holes mm -hmm. in the ground to export minerals. So that's, that's what we're mm. on. This campaign for Glass-Steagall is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of redeveloping an economic program for our country, but it's got to start mm. with regulating the, the criminal banking system. And now, with the turmoil, is actually the perfect time to get back to your MP and demand to know, are they going to move on these policy changes? Because that's what they need to do if they want to survive in politics. Now, we'll take a quick break, and after this, we'll talk about the Reserve Bank's role in the ongoing financial crisis here. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing the implosion of the party of bankers, just as the financial crash is really beginning to hit both globally and, of course, here in Australia. And we've been uh, keeping you appraised of developments in the, particularly the housing bubble, because with 60% of our banks lending going into housing, and now uh, the beginning of, of course, the downturn in housing prices in our major bubble markets. Um, this is a huge risk, not just for average citizens who are feeling the pain of what's going on, uh, but also because of the banks themselves being set to implode once this bubble comes down. Um, and we want to relay a bit of a story to you, which comes from economist John Adams. And uh, he wrote about the role of the Reserve Bank of Australia uh, in creating this bubble. We've talked a lot about, in particular, APRA's role but all of the regulators really and the government itself um, in creating and setting up this disaster. Um, so he wrote an article for Macro Business on the 21st of August, uh, John Adams that is, and you can also watch a show uh, on Martin North's channel, Walk the World, about this uh, to get more of the detail. But he discusses the role of the Reserve Bank uh, in creating the housing bubble through low interest rates and also exposes the chronic failure of public policy as a result of either the Reserve Bank failing to see the oncoming bubble or deliberately encouraging it. Um, he reveals a Reserve Bank of Australia paper from 1997 titled Asset Price Bubbles and Monetary Policy. And um, that paper shows that government policy 
quote, is to further pursue economic growth via ultra-low interest rates and further exacerbation of Australia's household and foreign debt bubbles until they ultimately break. That's John Adams saying that. Um, that's the policy. So in other words, they're bringing on this crisis. And uh, to reveal that, just to quote from the paper itself or to describe what's in the paper itself now, um, the paper written by uh, Philip Lowe, who's now the head of the Reserve Bank, and his colleague Christopher Kent, suggests, and this is written in 1997, and it suggests the sort of action that should be taken in the face of a bubble. And it gives two criteria. One, if you're looking at the early phases of the bubble. Um, secondly, if you're looking at a more advanced bubble. So one, the action that should be taken in the early stages of a bubble would be to raise interest rates and allow it to deflate. But in the second case, if the bubble is fully uh, developed and likely to collapse, the paper says monetary policy needs to be more concerned with the contractionary effects of the expected collapse. In some circumstances, this might require a reduction in interest rates before the collapse actually occurs. So in other words, just keep inflating it, let it go until it blows. Now, of course, as John says, this will result in the economic destruction of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Australians. What are the implications of this, Craig? Huge. Because look, the fact is you've got this bubble, the housing bubble is the backbone of the bank's assets, so-called, right? So if the bubble collapses and housing values collapse, there goes the banks, their assets have disappeared. But also, this indirect processes. Yeah, I was talking to someone about uh, this in terms of uh, you know, our neighbour and things like councils, like local councils mm. all over the country, like well, particularly here in Victoria, on the 1st of January every even year they do a housing revaluation for housing prices. Now back in 19, uh, 2014, the house value that he was talking about was valued a capital improved value of $500,000. Today, that same house is now worth 930000 because capital improved value has almost doubled. Now, what does that mean? Mm. That's what you pay your rates on, Elisa. So, you know, that's a $700 increase in rates in four years. Mm. Now, what does that mean for the ordinary person? Well, it might be all right for a wage earner to find that extra money if they've got a job. Mm. But what happens to the pensioners? What happens to the people living in their house for the last 50 years where their housing value has doubled, tripled and quadrupled? Their rates have gone through the roof and they've got to find that on a pension. So that's just one indirect way of doing it. So what people don't realise is the housing bubble, this, this, this policy that the Reserve Bank is underpinning, goes into every nook and cranny of the economy because it's based on a fallacy. It's based on speculation. Mm. And that's where the problem comes in. So people will lose their jobs mm. uh, you know, in terms of the, um, uh, the, the lack of credit that's going to be available. People won't be able to pay their mortgages. The mm. housing values will drop. All sorts of things. It's just unbelievable. And it, it just goes to show, as we were saying earlier, that the government is more concerned about money spinning, raking it in, keeping the current system going, rather than actually taking a long, hard look at the situation we've got here and implementing drastic policy change. To and, and, yeah, in the and case of councils, look, these, these provide the basic services. If housing values drop, mm. So does the income to local councils. And local councils are responsible for social services and providing all sorts of amenity. They're not going to survive those, support those anymore. So you're going to see a collapse of the economy through local councils. So this, this reaches into every aspect of how we live. Mm, that's right. So call your MP about that. And don't forget, if you need more information, call in for a copy of the Australian Alert Service where we've got all the backup info included. And um, if you haven't already been sent one, we'll send you out a complimentary copy. So we'll stop there. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 
how one of these policies that they are unwilling to break from austerity actually kills. Welcome back to the CEC report. Now we're discussing austerity doesn't work, it kills. Now, um, this is one of the policies that we've been talking about, Craig, uh, that governments are unwilling to jettison even to retain um, their positions in power. You know, if, if our leaders today were seriously wanting to remain in power, if Turnbull wanted to remain in power, he, you know, he could come out today and announce a whole raft of things that would be great for the country, which might arrest the campaign against him. It's probably a bit late now, but um, at you know a couple of days ago, a week ago, a month ago, any time during his tenure, he could have done mm -hmm. that and it would have had a dramatic change. Um, now, I want to talk about the UK briefly because austerity is a policy you know, of flogging off, selling off, privatising everything, cutting the budget, is a policy which over there has really and truly been proven as a disaster. Just this is, what's, this is what you see in the electricity industry here, Elisa. It's the mm. same thing. This is That's austerity right. in, in Australian terms. People are paying enormous amounts of money for electricity, a basic economic necessity because it was all sold off and mm. privatised and you know, starting in the 70s. This is the same policy mm. here. Exactly. Um, so in the United Kingdom, though, they have a party, the Labor Party, who under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, which, and this is, they took, you know, these guys were on the back bench for 30 plus years before they got into this position. But because they always stood for these policies, they are now getting the recognition that they are right because the people are hurting. And of course, yep. the average person, as is the case here in Australia, doesn't want to be political particularly, but when they start hurting, well, they will. Why would you when you look at the mess in camera today? I mean, exactly. it's quite a swamp. Exactly. So um, I want to show a video clip. This was a clip that was put up this week on the Twitter account uh, of John Corbyn. So this is one of their cam campaign um, advertisements or videos that they're showing. And it's a very clear uh, example of why austerity doesn't work. We need to make some cutbacks. Let's freeze teachers' wages. Great idea. I didn't get that pay rise and the rent's gone up. Well, we'll just have to cut down on our food bills. Business is slow, we didn't make as much this month. We'll have to cancel the renovations. Sorry, we uh, can't give you those extra hours. We lost a few contracts. Oh, that's all right, I'm sure things will pick up. Economic growth has slowed and the national debt is still going up. We'll have to make more cuts. Great idea. They've made more cuts at the school. Well, we'll just have to tighten our belts a bit more then. We'll start to lose money. We can't even afford the repairs now. I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to cut your hours. But I need that money. Oh, I've had my hours cut and I need to apply for working tax credits. Fill in this one. The economy's getting worse and now we're paying out more in benefits. Time to make more cuts. Great idea. I don't understand. Even after all our cuts, national debt has doubled and economic growth is terrible. Maybe austerity doesn't work?
So instead of that, Corbyn and McDonnell are proposing to invest in the real economy, revive manufacturing, they're calling it an investment revolution and they've proposed the mechanism, a national investment bank, to do it. Yeah, this is the key here, right? We've been in a, a monetarist system for the last 40 years, which means everyone looks at the profit of the system in terms of short-term monetary gain, usually over the course of a year or so forth. And that leads you to a looting process. When you're talking about real economic development and large-scale infrastructure development projects, you're talking 20, 30, 40 years, and you need a different credit system, a different structure, which is a national bank. Mm. Then you start investing in the economy, you see the massive gains in productivity and the real wealth of the economy is, it doesn't get measured in short-term dollar terms. This is a different idea. This mm. is physical e economics we're talking about here, something that the CEC has been talking about for now 30 years. Mm. We're uniquely qualified for this, and that's why we have um, uh, our own infrastructure development project to rebuild the nation. It requires national banking, but a different mindset than this looting mentality yeah. that is dominated today. And to show another really stark example of that looting mentality, we wanted to talk about the collapse a week or so ago of the bridge in Genoa, the Mirandi Bridge. Yeah, that's in a North classic example. Northwestern yeah. Italy. And this, of course, was the weekend of the beginning of the summer holidays, the main holiday there on the main route to the Italian Riviera south of France, the Mediterranean islands, the weather was atrocious with heavy rain so it couldn't have been worse scenario. But the company that owns this bridge uh, and the highway that it's on, Autostrada, was privatised in 1999 and today it owns over 3,000 kilometres out of 6,000 kilometres of privately owned highways in Italy. So it's a quasi-monopoly. They've seen 30% increases in tolls since 2008. Last year they had a 19% increasing growth and yet they have been decreasing in spending in, on investments and repairs and in May they had actually tendered for repairs that were known to be required however they decided to delay the repairs until after the summer period why maximize the profits of the tolls exactly they didn't want to lose all that profit being a main conduit to these holiday regions so here you have short term you know private economic interests ahead of the public safety and yeah. the public good. And this is the conflict. Mm. Whenever you allow these monetarist policies, economic rationalist policies to come into areas of government-owned public infrastructure, potentially, or you know, in this case, private in infrastructure, the public good always gets put behind pr private profit. Mm -hmm. And Ben Chifley, back in the 30s, made these... these uh, very clear statements about how a government should be in control of the yeah. nation's credit so that you don't end up with the credit being dominated by privately owned boardrooms. Yeah, well, the classic thing with Italy was that the whole privatisation program, which was the biggest rip-off and the biggest privatisation in all of Europe, was run in 1992. It was decided uh, in a meeting which took place in the Queen's Yacht Britannia off the coast of Italy. She was there, leading London bankers were there and they planned it all. So Italy was a model for the world uh, as has other places like New Zealand, Russia, even Victoria here in Australia. We got that story in the alert service. Yeah, yeah. ring in for a copy of the alert service because you can read the stories about the Royal Yacht Britannia and how that privatisation program ripped off all the crown jewels of Italy's infrastructure, a highly manufacturing economy. So that's pretty much all we've got time well, for this, this is week, the Craig. This is what this government represents, it's what's collapsing, Lisa. Yep, so we'll find out next week when we talk to you who the new government is and tell you what to expect. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. And join us next week.